So we're going to start off with something we take as axiomatic. Uh, This is a foundational, fundamental thing. We assume here at First Christian Church, you don't consume spiritual growth. You don't consume spiritual growth. You participate in it. At FCC, our strategy for achieving our mission of helping people find and follow Jesus is broken down into what we call our seven habits because we become what we repeatedly do. Each one of us, we become in the future what we repeatedly do from day to day until suddenly we're someone or something else. We become what we repeatedly do. Whatever you may think about how life change works, listen, y'all, make no mistake. It is your day-to-day habits that shape you into who you will someday be. So today we're focusing on our fifth habit, which is to pursue generosity. And that's another way for us, uh, another way for these seven habits to shape you into a kingdom contributor. We say very clearly straight up here at First Christian, our goal as a church is to make God's vision for this church your vision for your life. Our goal as a church is to call you to become a kingdom contributor whose resources are leveraged for what what God wants to do in the world. Whose resources are leveraged for life change. So, let's define that a bit here before we get into it a little bit today. What do we mean by pursue generosity? We mean lots of things. We mean all of the resources, not just money. We will focus on money today, which we do a time or so a year. Um, But we're going to define this by saying pursue, pursue generosity means this. Christians are called to have an outward trajectory, an outward trajectory that increasingly leverages our resources for the sake of others in a way that reflects God's grace to us and advances his kingdom. We say it this way because, listen, it's not like we have a a preponderance of people whose resources are so leveraged for everybody else that we need to, like, bring in the reins of people. Are we, we preaching yet? It's important to understand what we're saying here. Pursue generosity is to have an outward trajectory that increasingly that increasingly leverages our resources that are really God's for the sake of others. <laughs> because let's, let's be real, most of them are, 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 are this way. We're to be about increasingly leveraging our resources for others in a way that reflects God's grace and advances his kingdom. It is a selfless, outward, grace-filled giving in all of the many ways that that can take shape. And we acknowledge at the beginning, we acknowledge up front, pursuing generosity can mean a whole bunch of things with a whole bunch of kinds of resources, not just money, but we are going to talk about money in particular today. So go ahead and get tense and defensive and and inwardly sort of emotionally, uh, okay? We'll make it easy on you eventually, don't worry. But we should be asking ourselves, if we're believers in Jesus, questions like this. Does my giving look like the undeserved grace of God to me? Do I think about stewardship of all of my resources? Do I think about stewardship of those resources as means of advancing God's kingdom? Is the trajectory of my use of resources increasingly outward and for the sake of others? Or do I continue to just 
patently define my use of resources as inward and, and a trajectory of me. Listen, an inward trajectory of me is not what made Jesus courageous enough to go to the cross to give us grace, y'all. So we're to reflect that grace. So, so we're looking increasingly for a trajectory of outward grace-filled giving. Now, so is this about money? Duh, of course it's about money. Uh, it's about other things too, but we're going to focus on giving away our financial resources as a means of demonstrating a number of things that we'll talk about here in Malachi 3. Uh, a means of, uh, of demonstrating that we worship God as first and foremost in our hearts. Also about, about the idea that we further kingdom causes. So we'll talk about those kinds of things uh, eventually here. But, but I would just want to say up front, uh, I'm well aware that as soon as a preacher stands up here and says, hey, y'all, we're going to talk about money today. Um, a number of us freak out a little bit and get tense and defensive and we start thinking through all the, the years that we've slaved away, working for the man, and how like we come up with all those internal reasons and fears that tempt us to hold on to money as a form of control and as a means of, of personal security. I get all that. <laughs> we approach our money a lot like uh, the little girl that was on her way to church with her mom, um, her mom gave her a quarter and a dollar before church and said, Honey, you can place the quarter or the dollar in the offering plate. It's entirely up to you. Uh, so later when the mom asked the little girl what she did, she said, Well, at first I was going to give the dollar, but the man with the Bible on stage said that God loves a cheerful giver. So I just kind of figured that if I gave the quarter instead of the dollar, I'd be much more cheerful. <laughs> That's not really how it works, though. That's not how it works. In fact, in fact, we want to hold before you today a vision for your money that brings you way more than you can get by hoarding it. We want to hold you uh, before you today a, a kingdom vision about stewardship of our money that brings way more than you can get by giving it away than you can by keeping it. You see, if done God's way, not only when you pursue generosity, not only will you find financial security, we'll tell you about that a little bit here later, not only will you find financial security, you will actually find a personal contentment you can't have when money's the control thing. You will also help fund life change and kingdom advance. And here's the cool thing. The, the, the more we are people with an outward trajectory of generosity, the more we experience personally the grace of God to us. If you know what grace looks like, begin to act like Jesus. If you know what grace looks like, begin to sacrifice of self in a way that contributes to the good of others becoming who God created them to be. That's a vision for your life that receives much more when you give it away. So we're going to land in a place eventually here that, uh, that makes it all really simple and easy to understand and, and applicable to you wherever your situation, I, I promise, wherever your situation financially, we'll do that. But let's start that by looking at how most people handle their money. This is how the overwhelming majority of people in our country especially handle their money. Three things, spend, save, and give. And it looks like this. Spend is about 92-ish percent. These percentages are based on looking at about six to eight studies of the last few years of how Americans handle their money. And that's, that's comprised basically of repaying debts, paying taxes, and buying stuff. So that's 92-ish percent. And actually, we're being a little bit charitable here. Uh, save at 5%. In the last few years, it's actually been less than half that. 
and the average household in America. So we'll be nice and we'll be kind and say, yeah, I'll probably save 5% at least. Sure, we'll go with that. So save is all the forms of saving, retirement, etc. Um, so we, we spend, we save, and then third is we give, and that average is about 3%-ish uh, for the average household in America. And that's all forms of charitable giving, whether it's church, other nonprofits, etc. Now, what is important to see here about this is that this is not just how people spend their money. This is the order of priority. Notice what this really reveals is an order of priorities. And it's mostly centered around my priorities. We repay debts, we pay taxes, we buy stuff. All me, 92%-ish. Then we save some, somewhat me, sometimes others, and then at the end we give. Notice that what this really says is <laughs> we pay our debts and pony up to Washington. Yeah, we want to keep ourselves out of jail. Sure, do that. Good. We buy stuff for ourselves, and that's all the normal expenses. We're not saying that's wrong. We're not saying that's bad. Duh, you need food, clothing, shelter, Netflix, etc. Cool, fine. But what this shows is that it's an order of priorities because we spend on ourselves, we save for ourselves, and then we give as a leftover, a hopefully, a perhaps, a maybe, an if all the rest of it goes well, then apparently if I've got some left and I feel comfortable and, and the preacher says things I like and, and, and all those kinds of things, I'll get around at the end of service to tipping maybe. That. That's just how it actually works, typically. That's actually how most Americans handle their money. And here's what that order of priority actually illustrates, friends. It illustrates that, like it or not, your checkbook and your use of money tells the real story of what you value and who you worship. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. There your heart will be also. Where are you putting, what, what do you value in treasure? What do you put your time and energy and effort and money into? Oh, it's over there? There's your heart. Friends, your bank statement is a theological accounting of who or what we truly prioritize as first love in our lives. So as believers in Jesus who believe that, that God gave us grace we can't deserve and we are infinitely in debt to him, we should be asking ourselves these kinds of questions like what does my bank statement say about my priorities? This was a question that the people of God in the Old Testament book of Malachi needed to be asking for themselves because their hearts were far from God. They were bringing him their leftovers. And so God sent Malachi the prophet to confront them. Their giving for, for, for God and for the temple had become an afterthought. It was the last thing on the bottom. It was sort of the dregs of their devotion. And so that's the scene as we jump into Malachi 3, starting at verse 7 here. God sent the prophet Malachi to confront them. And so here's what Malachi says. On behalf of God, God speaking to the people, he says this, verse 7, From the days 
of your fathers. In other words, this has been going on for a while, y'all. From the days of your fathers, this is a multi-generational thing. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Now, now the people knew. The people knew that they were to bring their best animals for sacrifice at the temple. They knew that they had been commanded to bring 10% of their their tithes, uh, 10% of their animals and their crops. Um, And earlier in Malachi, they had already heard Malachi say um, from God, you're bringing me sacrifices you wouldn't eat yourselves. Like they're so sickly and weak, they're costing you nothing. And that's what you bring? What does that say? He literally says in the first chapter of Malachi, I don't even want to accept your offerings. Keep them, I don't even want them. So God says here, to the people of God through the prophet Malachi, keep reading here, verse 7. He says, return to me. That's, uh, that's repentance, come back to me language. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he, he was not turned toward them. He was turned away from them at this point. Return to me, I will return to you. But you say, the people say to God, how shall we return? Return from what, God? We haven't done anything. In other words, they just flat out didn't get it. They were oblivious to their sin of giving God their leftovers. So here's God's response. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Well, now that you mention it, I don't, I don't think that's possible. You own it all. So, no? Will man rob God? The answer, of course, is no. Man cannot rob God. He already owns it all, and the Israelites knew this. Yet, verse 8, God speaking, yet, God speaking to them, you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? Here's how, in your tithes and in your contributions. Boom. Oh, yeah. That thing. That thing. Which for them had been a command. It had been very explicit, very easy to understand, 10%. It had been a command for them for generations. But they are functionally robbing God. And so here's what he says, verse 9. He says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So not only were they, were they not bringing the right animals for sacrifice, diseased and sickly animals. They were also not bringing the full 10%. And the real problem here, don't miss the point here, the real problem here wasn't that they were robbing God of the best sacrifices or that they were giving poor quality gifts as if God actually needed them, right? The real problem was the story that their weak and their faithless giving told, which is God didn't deserve our best. He doesn't deserve that much. I can't really trust him. Listen, they certainly spoke like God deserved their very best. They maintained their stance very loudly and forcefully on Facebook. They shared the Jesus memes with their friends and family. They protested as if offended that, of course, I worship and prioritize God as King and Lord. And their measly offerings actually told the real story of the condition of their hearts. God says here. So God says, until, until you all stop being freeloading thieves, don't count on my blessings. He says, bring 
the full tithe into the storehouse. There were storage rooms in the temple there. That there may be food in my house. They were actually short on supplies in the temple. Um, which is to say, think about this, short of supplies in the temple. Uh, there were some who looked at all the activity in the temple that was going on. And uh, they thought to themselves, looks like they've got everything under control. Looks like everything is fine. They don't need my help. Guess what happens when enough people think that way? Guess what happens, not just to a church, but to a community, a, a nation, when enough people think that way? What sets in is a spiritual, deadbeat consumerism that becomes the norm. A spiritual, deadbeat consumerism is the number one problem in the, the world today, friends. It's not that we don't le legislate enough morality. It's not that we don't have the right people in offices. It's not that we don't have uh, enough education. The problem in our world today is that people like us sit here thinking it's okay to be consumers. Guess what the next generation feels after us? I'm entitled. I'm a consumer. I got options. I got all the resources I need. They learn it from us. We are responsible, friends, to take up the banner of being people who are outward in our trajectory of care for people. Who else is going to do this? Someone else? When enough people think that way, our current situation is what we get to, friends. Where, don't miss what I'm saying, 75% of us in this room, we perseverate over this idea. I, I don't know about the future of this country. I don't know. I, I'm worried. I got, I got fears about the future of this country. I know you all think that. The fix is not to sit around and wait for somebody else to take responsibility. The fix is to say God's got a vision for my life that is outward and grace-filled and is about demonstrating that when we pursue the grace of God given to us and give it away, people become who God called them to be. It's a vision for your life that you can't make happen unless you're generous. Unless you love the grace of God given to you so much that you can't help to say, 10%, I'll give everything I can. Spiritual deadbeat consumerism as the norm is the problem in the world today. Make no mistake, you won't legislate or educate or smart or anything our way out of irresponsibility until we take responsibility. And people around us learn it and we train them. It's our responsibility to show them, to be makers of disciples who make disciples. God didn't call you here today so that you could go away with a sense of, I'm so glad that they've got everything covered there. No, we're calling you to this. We're calling you to this. This is God's vision for your life, friends. To become a productive, helpful, loving, generous giver of the grace of God to others. And that's a vision for your life right there, friends. So God says, let's get back to the text. 
God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, by trying to do that, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. If you do this, look at this, verse 11. If you do this, I'll be your pest control. Not kidding, he says that. I will rebuke the devourer for you. It's not about Satan. It's about keeping pests and insects away from your crops. Keep reading. I rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So let me summarize Malachi 3, 7 to 12 here a little bit. God's basically saying to the people, you're functionally robbing me by bringing diseased and weak animals to sacrifice, not breathing the full, not bringing the full 10% commanded tithe, not because I need to receive it, but because you need to give it. (laughs) You need to give it as a demonstration of your total dedication and devotion and love for me in worship, as, as an indication of your trust that I made you and will provide for you. In fact, he says, test me. Test me to see if your obedience in this way uh, doesn't bring forth what I promise. If you bring the full tithe, he says, I will bless you, your entire nation, way beyond your need. Here's something many contemporary believers need to see here. The tithe wasn't just about providing for the temple. Of course it did that. It was also about whether they truly worshipped God as first in their life. About whether they truly trusted in his provision. So, Summary over. Let's talk a little bit about the word that freaks out everybody. He used here in Malachi and the words tithe. Long story short, a tithe was an Old Testament command uh, to give one-tenth of the income to the temple as an act of devotion to and trust in God's provision and to fund for the ongoing activities of the temple. So, question is, that was Old Testament. Does God still expect New Testament believers today to give 10% of their income to his work? Uh, The answer is a difficult, muddy, gray, wisdom, freedom issue of no and yes. (laughs) Um, No, it's not a command like in the, the Old Testament. It's not a command in the New Testament. But yes, it is a worthy and I believe helpful guide. At at this point, many are quick to protest that nowhere in the New Testament is there a suggested percentage of giving. Yes, that's true. Uh, We'll talk about that in a little bit. It doesn't specifically command a tithing as it did in the Old Testament. Yes, that's true. Um, But there are lots of things, by the way, that we do for the good of our personal growth and for the forward movement of the gospel that have nothing to do with being explicitly commanded in the New Testament. It doesn't explicitly command that we do Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Their pattern was to celebrate it when they gathered, but it wasn't an explicit command. There's a whole host of good practices that we participate in that we would never make an argument for not doing those, but somehow when it comes to our money, we suddenly have an actual hang-up about that thing that isn't commanded that we want to make sure we don't have to live up to. The point is that trying to explain away tithing as not biblical, not helpful, because it's not a formal, explicit New Testament command from God is not by itself a good argument for not using it as a guide. We could just as well, for the same reasons, um, abandon the Ten Commandments, if that's the extent of your argument for it. So, I want to quickly and briefly give six reasons why I think tithing is still a helpful um, and um, even in some sense biblical guide for our giving. And then we'll end with some practical advice. uh, Because despite what I'm about to say about tithing being a good guide for us, um, there are still muddy waters and it's a freedom and wisdom issue. It's still a gray area. So six reasons 
why I think tithing is still a helpful guide for us. Number one, because of the three principles we just talked about in Malachi that still um, are true. God blesses those who are generous. Giving is an indication, not the, but an indication of whether or not you actually worship God as first in, in your heart. Um, also, giving is an indication. It's not the, but it's an indication of your trust in God's provision for you. So that's the first one, um, is those three principles that still apply from Malachi. Here's another one. You don't even have to be a Christian to believe this. It's good character-building practice for us to give away our money. Uh, in a world where we are constantly tempted to believe in the illusion that money is control, which it's not, it builds character to practice not being tied to the illusion that money or anything is control and to give away our money. The third reason, because our giving as New Testament believers in Jesus, our giving is to be inspired by love, not by law. Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament and the law. He fulfilled it. We give not because we're commanded to. We we give because we love to do so. We give because... We love that in Jesus, the perfect sinless life that was lived for us on our behalf and we couldn't, that died on the cross to make that effective for us and raised a new life to show that he is God and that we have victory over sin. That truth of the gospel is something we hold precious and dear. And because we love Jesus, we give in the way he's given to us. Not because we're commanded to, not because I'm standing here telling you, but because we love to do so and because we grow from it. We grow from it, just like with a whole host of other spiritual disciplines and practices that we typically don't have an issue with. Here's another reason. Because in the New Testament, think about this, (laughs) tithing in the New Testament was already the accepted starting point for giving among the first Christians. Almost all of them were Jews. Meaning, think about it this way. (laughs) Jesus and the first disciples had been tithing their entire lives. Do you think they somehow stopped when they were eventually forced out of the temple? There's actually plenty of evidence in the New Testament to show that the early Christians gave generously uh, to the local body of believers. Uh, Last two things here. Because the tithe was used in the Old Testament to fund the work of the temple, and that's the closest thing we have uh, to a model for organized funding of the work of the body today. And and, and parenthetically, by the way, disorganized funding of the kingdom where I am head and owner of my resources and I'm not under the authority of a local body of elders is not, well, that's disorganized funding of the kingdom. Let's just say it that way. And then finally, and I think this is a a bigger reason than um, than we realize at first glance. I think, I think it's still a helpful model because tithing is actually too limiting in a way. If people gave 10% under the old covenant when it was required by law, wouldn't they want to give more under the new covenant in response to God's grace? Right? Like perhaps the New Testament doesn't require tithing as a minimum because for people who are infinitely in debt to a God whose grace forever covers our ugliest sin, 10% doesn't even begin to touch what we want to give Him. We want to give Him our whole lives. So... So while it's true that the New Testament doesn't command uh, not only other good reasons to consider it a guide, but the Bible also does clearly teach a proportionate uh, percentage of our income giving. 
It's even the New Testament. One example here is 1 Corinthians 16, 2, where it says this, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up. Here's the key, as he may prosper. That phrase at the end there, as he may prosper, uh, means it's it's a function rising and falling with your income. The NIV says it well, in keeping with income. As income goes down and up, percentage. So, then and now, 10% serves as a reasonable, helpful, uh, even in some ways, a good biblical beginning point for determining that percentage. So, tithing may not be a command like the Old Testament, but it is a good guide. And so the question remains for us today, in practical terms, how much is enough? Here's where you can begin to relax. For some people, 10% may be too much. It's not feasible. If you're not able to provide basic necessities for your family, uh, maybe your spouse is not a believer um, and doesn't share your conviction, um, or you and your spouse are continuing to fight over what's the right amount, <laughs> or you're worried about giving on gross or net, or you're paying down a debt that is overwhelming everything, then you can relax. 10% may not be doable. That's fine. No big deal. That's not the point about all this. The point is pray about this, Talk about it with a few mature believers you trust and settle on something that works for you and start there. A lot of people just sort of punt on this whole question because they're like, I'm not sure where to. If I get this wrong, what happens? Oh, no. (laughs) Pray, talk with other wise believers, figure out a good place to start and start there and then go up when you can, as you're able, as he may prosper. If it's 1%, start there, fine. If it's 5%, start there, fine. Revisit it every few months, six months, year, when you get an increase in salary, when you sell a house and you make money. Whatever the case may be, revisit that and continue to increasingly make your trajectory outward. We started years ago below 10%, pretty considerably below 10% for us, uh, and we increased it 1% a year, um, sometimes two, but mostly 1% a year, uh, to get to the 50% where we are now. I'm just kidding. Relax. (laughs) Like I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Uh, It'd be cool. It'd be cool to give away 50%. Sure. Um, For some people, 10% is just totally unattainable at this point. That's fine. No big deal. Work towards something. Do something. Pursue generosity with us. Uh, For other people, honestly, 10% may be too little. Uh, We have far more than we need God's blessed us abundantly. We want to be as generous with others as God has been to us. The point is basically, though, this. The Bible teaches in basic terms to give a proportion of our income to support kingdom work in our local church where we are personally invested. So let's talk again about that priorities list. Let's look again at that priorities list for handling money, which is typically spend, save, give. I want to tell you why God's model for this is totally upside down to what we typically do. Let's see if what, what would happen if we flipped this list upside down. What if this is how we actually handled our money? Give, save, spend. This is why we say this every Sunday in our offering time. We say, give first, save second, live on the rest. We believe that giving first honors God. When we give first, we are giving God first place. Saving second builds wealth and financial security for us. It prepares us 
for the future and allows us to operate from a position of strength in providing for our family and others in need. And then third, living on the rest teaches contentment. The secret to financial freedom isn't earning more, but wanting and living on less. We believe giving first, saving second, living on the rest is a good formula for us pursuing generosity. Now here's the thing. Here's the cool thing about this, turning it upside down. When we give first, save second, and live on the rest, if we did things God's way, you would know exactly what you spend on your living expenses. The reality about most people in our country is they don't know what they're spending on their living expenses because they're handling their money upside down. They're spending on self first. And God and others is an afterthought. And when we do it with self first, we always, we always overspend on self. We always overspend on self. This is probably a good time, incidentally, by the way, to tell you that we have a a real cool ministry we don't talk a lot about out loud, but um, it's called Financial Freedom. And we have Financial Freedom Mentors. Um, who would love to come alongside you and help you get control of your finances if you feel like they're out of control, if you've been doing the the spend, uh, save, give, instead of give, save, spend. Um, It's a confidential mentoring kind of thing. Um, They do a really great job with it. Uh, If you're interested in that, let us know on the Connect card, and we'll have them contact you. Uh, My wife and I, listen, we know what it's like, (laughs) y'all. Uh, to live with little. I was three years in seminary with nothing but ramen noodles. I, I'm not exaggerating. Um, we, we needed someone to come alongside us and help us get our heads around what, what, a, what a good way to spend our money and save our money and give our money other direction, actually. Um, so, so let us know in your Connect card and we'll have them contact you. Friends, God gave us our life's resources, <laughs> including our money, so that we would pursue a trajectory of selflessness that looks like Jesus. And when you begin using your money for God and others first, you have begun to pursue generosity in a way that reflects God's grace to you. In Malachi 3, God is saying to us, I dare you, I dare you to try give to me first giving and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and dump a blessing on your life. Try him, test him. And see if you don't continue to grow as a habit day after day and week after week into a kingdom contributor, into a kingdom contributor who understands deeply in your bones the grace of God given to you. And people look at your generosity and they go, huh, that's weird, but it's cool. And it becomes a witness to those around you. And your community has changed. Friends, we're a body of believers that takes on God's vision for our life because we believe our joy is bound up in it. We believe our joy is bound up in His vision for our lives. Let's pray, friends. Lord, forgive us for all the many ways that we have given in to the lie that that we can manipulate this world Because, Lord, as we do that day after day, year after year, we believe that this is a world that doesn't, that doesn't need you. So, Father, we ask that you would 
Forgive us for the sin of acting like our resources, our own. Give us, Lord, the kind of vision for our resources that comes from your heart to give yourself to us when we didn't deserve it. When we were in red-handed rebellion against you, Lord, We ask, Lord, that the new life in Christ, the regenerated new life in Christ that we have, would be for us a model of our resources and giving um, so that we would be a light to the nations, that we would be a witness to our community, um, that people would look at even our handling of money and they would say, that's weird, but it's cool because our lives reflect your goodness and your grace to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus.